Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 124. And it is the first episode of 2020. And we are about three and a half years into doing this podcast. And I am excited as ever and motivated as ever to move on and continue on with this podcast. I truly enjoy that weekly discussion, but it's also because we have created a community here. Yes, a community. I might be the one talking, but it's your feedback, your interaction, your emails, your notes, your um, follow-up that allows me to continue to curate this uh, podcast for you and where the interests lie. I probably would have run out of things to talk about well, maybe not, but um, run out of things to talk about had it not been or if I were not receiving feedback from you, what you like, what's working, what you enjoy, along with um, the questions you may have and the type of podcasts you would like to see discussed, addressed, and so forth here. So this is episode 124, and it was interesting. I did a fair amount of reading and reflection and I had a mindfulness retreat, um, an immersive retreat, intensive seminar um, also last week in the three weeks off of not only the podcast but of work during the holidays and kicking back in on the other side, I had the opportunity to read something um, the other day that reminded me of why I do the podcast. And many of you uh, know that I do a fair amount of reading, especially with regards to philosophy, modern philosophy, psychology, stoicism especially. Um, And I really like reflecting or going back, reading some of that and how it applies to our day-to-day struggles. Stoicism, that is, how um, it applies to being an athlete, how it applies to our mindset, and um, just dealing with obstacles and um, just how it's ever-present, whether it's raising children, whether it's at work, whether it's um, pushing ourselves beyond doubts and so forth. And I came across this uh, passage or this chapter the other day, and I'll just read from it um, the way I read it. The Stoics believed we were put on this planet for each other, that we each had a role to play in the larger whole, that we must constantly meditate on our sympathia, on our mutual interdependence. What good is our success if it comes at the expense of others? What good are we if we can't help others? We are all bound up in this thing called life together. If we forget that, we are not only as advanced or as evolved as we think we are, but we are tuning We are turning our backs on an ancient truth as well. And as I read that, it was actually tied into why the Weekly Word podcast? Why do this weekly? Why continue to deliver after 124 episodes and 300 and some odd hours of this, of me talking? (laughs) Um, But that captures it, that we're here for each other that we're all part of a larger whole, and what good is our success? My success as an athlete, um, as a triathlete, as an ultra runner, and not that I've won a lot of things or that I'm this um, 
crazy successful athlete in that space, but enough to be at the top or the front end of it for many years. What, what good is that success if it comes at the expense of others? What good are we if we can't help others? That's what the Weekly Word Podcast is. It's about sharing. It's about helping. It's about guiding. It's about um, allowing others to have a little bit more insight on their journey as they do this. And it's intimidating. It's daunting in many respects, ultra endurance and endurance. And if there's a format, a way that I can make it a bit easier, a bit more informed, a bit more confident in taking on your ultra endurance journey, your fitness, your lifestyle, your understanding around it, that's all I care about. Um, We are all bound up in this thing called life together, yes, and especially trying to navigate our way through our days with work and family to still be endurance athletes, to still take on ultra endurance endeavors despite being busy with life and family and work and carving out little pieces of time daily so that we are able to continue on our endurance journey to continue to get a little better a little fitter a little stronger and also a little smarter about who we are and how we go about what we do with training Um, it's important to understand that we have this little window of time every day and if we're better informed about it or we can relate to others about it or we talked about it here so that you can do it easier and not judge yourself or um, have doubts or questions and instead execute better and then move on. That's what the Weekly Word Podcast in helping and supporting is all about. If we forget that, we're not only as advanced or evolved as we think we are, but we are turning our backs on an ancient truth as well. The ancient truth of helping others, that we're all part of a bigger community. And ultra endurance, you know, is difficult enough in a vacuum without work and family and life's responsibilities and things getting thrown our way with, let's say, a family circumstance or a work project or circumstance that requires more of our time. So it is difficult just to do an ultra endurance event and that's not just running i'm talking about all the ultra endurance ideas adventures expeditions events that are out there anywhere from of course ultra running to ironmans to um you know multi-day hiking expeditions or running expeditions or sailing expeditions or rowing expeditions or stand-up paddling expeditions i made a list of the accomplishments and the results of my athletes from last year as i said i would deliver on a previous podcast and it is crazy to me the variety of ultra endurance adventures that people are taking on and ultra endurance being in my opinion sort of a 10 to 12 hour threshold if it takes you from sun up to sundown continuously to do something it's ultra endurance Endurance is, let's say, the way I see it, three to 
10 hours, right? That's more, you can go pretty strong, but you get to sleep in your own bed and have a meal that night and wake up and still have a meal. And sort of, it's sort of the sun's up. You do your thing for a lot of the day and then you shut it down. Ultra endurance, you're going through the night, through many days and so forth. But you are all doing it despite work, despite family, despite so many obstacles in our way. You are figuring out how to do that and navigate it. And that's what this community is. That's what this podcast is. And that's all I care to share the most about on this podcast. How do we continue on our ultra endurance journey? How do we have the knowledge, the strategy, the training, the prep, the execution, the prescription, the nutrition, the fueling, the mindset, the health, the physical stamina, the physical health to do what we want to do. What fires us up? What lights a fire inside us, right? As we've talked about on this podcast plenty as well, is that I believe that we are all endurance beings from a primal deep down sense that before any other activities came up, um, we were always endurance animals. I mean, that's deep down in our brain, I think. And it's wired deep down, not in the modern brain, not in the animal brain. I think even down in that deep lizard brain, that far down in our stem, that we are meant to be outside. We are meant to be active for many hours at a time. And you can use the born to run analogy that we ran on the open plains for many hours in order to wear down our prey or what we needed to eat. But that we as tribes, we lived outside. We moved. We moved locations. We moved where we lived. We weren't stagnant. We moved to where better hunting grounds, better foraging, better um, conditions. We had to move because of our environment, winter or summer, or too windy or too difficult. So we're, we're nomads. We're constantly moving. And today we do none of that. We don't forage. We don't hunt. We don't struggle. We don't move a lot. And therefore, Again, when we see those pictures on the wall at REI, when we open an outside magazine and see the beautiful pictures of camping and life outdoors, when we look at Instagram and see a Killian Journey running on mountaintops and cresting peaks and running over them like it looks like he's just running through a park, but it inspires, it, it, it awakens something deep inside us. And I believe that is the endurance animal within us, the ultra endurance animal that is always curious, always scratching a little bit to come out and to display itself. It's a deep primal urge. And that's why we make it a priority more and more. Obviously, you hear the listeners in this little world that we live in of ultra endurance, but I think more and more. People are coming to recognize this. Humanity is coming to recognize this, that being active, being outdoors is part of our DNA. It's critical to our health. And so my little part in that, my little sympathia, right? Our mutual interdependence of contributing a little bit 
to that bigger picture is what the Weekly Word Podcast is. And that's that's the intro for this week. So happy 2020. I hope we all have amazing adventures and expeditions and events and ideas planned. Um, I say ideas, self-curated things, things you've been curious about, things that you think would be fun and challenging, and maybe not in far-off places, but in your state, in your neighborhood, in your area, that you can do your own ultra-endurance adventure. So, I mean, yeah, we don't all have to be, (laughs) as I was just talking to Colin O'Brady a couple of days ago, um, have to be rowing our uh, with a few others our a rowboat from Argentina from the tip of South America to Antarctica continuously through the night. It's like, dude, someday you're gonna have to sit still in a chair and stare out over out a porch in your backyard and be happy with that as kids are running around. So, um. But yeah, that's obviously the far end of the spectrum. But we also have ultra-endurance adventures, self-curated, self-thought-of ideas that can play out here at home. I've talked about running every street in your town. Like um, the Solomon Runner did did a few, did last year or two years ago. Um, There's many trails and hike-throughs that... um, are within a couple of hours driving. And how about running that? How about running from sunup to sundown or moving from sunup to sundown or multiple days? Or, you know, again, so many ideas, so many things we can do. I'm not going to spend too much time on this part. But yeah, so this week on the podcast, what are we going to talk about? Well, I talk a little bit about my last few weeks, the wedge week of my own. I'm going to talk a little bit about a test group um, that I'm thinking about coaching um, and applying to a few of my athletes, but maybe some of you would be interested in following along and applying for yourself. Um, I'm going to dive into the accomplishments of my athletes and the athletes I worked with in 2019, and um, I'm going to talk about preseason training. the way a lot of my athletes are going through it and highlighting that to everybody as well. So, but yeah, that's going to be episode 124. And I also have a couple of good questions in there on email. I have a, I got, I received a lot of emails over the holidays and I also received a lot of really good feedback and I'm excited to um, apply that feedback so that you all can have a better weekly word podcast experience. And with that, you know, definitely a few more opportunities for interviews, for people on the podcast, for different scenarios with regards to um, calls with athletes or interviews with athletes or um, consultations that you get to listen into. So that's always been well received and I will continue to fine tune that and do better with that. So that is episode 124. I hope you enjoy this week. So the holidays this year for me. (laughs) Well, I needed probably a wedge month, if we call it that. So they started off really well in that I felt really strong and fit going into the holidays. I left 
town on December 19th or 20th. And we head to Jackson, Wyoming every year for Christmas or New Year's. It depends if we have the kids um, as two divorced parents. We don't have our kids full two weeks every year during the holidays. So it's either the first week or the second week that we go to Jackson. And so we went for Christmas this year because we had the kids for Christmas. And uh, so we left on the 20th. And I think the day before I did a 20 mile run with a uh, buddy of mine getting ready for Western States. He had found out that he got in. So we ran 20 miles on the mountain and um, mountain being Mount Tam around here. And I was feeling really good in the pool, swimming, really connected, really powerful. And I uh, had a pretty good training week going into the off day of driving to Jackson. We didn't fly. When you when you have three dogs, four kids, two adults, ski gear, and gifts, and Christmas stuff, and ornaments, and all that, you can't really fly. So we drove drove two cars as a full caravan with all these things and equipment and stuff and animals that we transported to Jackson, Wyoming. And then got there and quickly not only felt off, um, had some, just some illness, not really a cold, but then um, said to myself, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to, like I had discussed on the previous podcast. Well, that wasn't a good idea either because therefore when I skied with the kids, um, I quickly injured myself from no activity to some activity after major activity might not have been the best idea. So back got knocked out pretty badly trying to follow your kids down a mountain, down a mogul, a black diamond mogul where they've been skiing for four days already and you're sort of cold first run of the day or maybe second run of the day um, after not skiing for a year sort of dive down the same course run with them bad idea and I knew at the end of those moguls that I was done I was shot I was in the lodge <laughs> by 10 a.m. <laughs> I probably had my first beer at 10 45 a.m. um because, uh, yeah, I could not ski anymore. And I was a, not a wreck because um, that makes it sound more mental. I was more, um, I was debilitated and could not really move for the remaining three, four days we were in Jackson. We still had a wonderful time, a wonderful holidays there. But yeah, definitely limited. And then when I came back, I still wasn't able to swim properly. Flip turns did not work. I was not able to run. I was running crooked and protective upright in a bad way i tried to cycle and that actually felt pretty good as in the least amount of pain and least amount of being bothered by it but um, i also didn't have a lot of time um, and so going on a three four hour bike ride was just not reality and anything shorter around here means climbing or um just stop and go and therefore I didn't want to do that with my back so it turned out to be two weeks off of wedge week time got injured on December 26th and finally this week January 8th 9th I'm just getting back into it so that's a good five plus three plus uh, five plus eight that's 13 that's almost two weeks yeah two weeks off wedge wedge week and these happen 
injuries happen. Um, you know, you can be fit, you can be strong, you can take care of your body and things will happen. And it's frustrating in the moment. It's um, question, you question yourself in the moment. Um, having an event with Attilo Swim Run Catalina in a few weeks, meaning late February and a coast ride next week, I was worried. And of course, the stories start popping up in your head and creeping into your head. Will I be able to do this? Will I get better? What's going on? Is it worse? Is it something that I need to get an MRI? Do, do I need to um, go see a doctor? What do I need to do? Versus relaxing and accepting and taking a big picture approach, knowing I'll get my fitness back, knowing I'll be training soon enough, knowing I'll be sleeping properly again soon enough that this too shall pass. But in the moment, it's difficult. Absolutely. The patience of rebuilding is as hard as the training itself. Feeling so good before I left and having to restart that process and knowing it's going to take two, three weeks in swimming to get back to that point where I was back in December, knowing it's going to take three, four, five weeks to get back to running to the point I was back in December when everything was lining up very nicely is frustrating, for sure frustrating. But from that perspective, it there's nothing you can do better to rush it along, to um, change the timing. You have to allow your body to heal on its own, in its own way. Now, of course, you can work with doctors and PTs, and I got massages, and I got some, I got it looked at um, by my very trusted Dougie T. But um, yeah, it 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 is debilitating, and it leaves you definitely questioning yourself. And that was the wedge weeks, and starting to go back to it now, being careful, um, doing some strength work yesterday taking all the weight off and just doing the motions cleanly and sort of feeling the body and, and reconnecting with it from head to toe, from fingertips to toe tips, feeling the hips and the lower back and making sure that it's all firing and connecting, that I'm not protecting a certain area with future load on it. I'm about to sit on my bike next week for six to eight hours a day for four days in a row. And I have to protect and be careful with my body so that it's ready for that next week. Will I be ready fitness-wise? No, absolutely not. I did one bike ride since before Thanksgiving um, uh, last week when I came home when I was saying I was able to ride my bike. One bike ride. Um, and we're about to have 420 mile bike days in a row. I'll get through it. I'll figure it out. But in order to do that, I can't be protecting one side of my back. I can't be tight and restricted. So being mindful of that now, being patient with it now, and trusting the body that it knows what to do, trusting that ever so gently, day by day, things will get better trusting that I will figure it out and the body will settle into what it needs to do after I've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and exactly the same thing for anyone when they have a wedge week, when they're coming back from sickness, when they're coming back from injury. It is taking the little incremental but compounding steps 
to get better, fitter, stronger, faster again. Um, that's the hard part. The compounding is what we don't necessarily always feel, but the little steps are so important to returning to our fitness, to some fitness, and then to our fitness, the fitness we want in order to feel connected and then to challenge ourselves. It's one thing to get fit again, to get to a platform of fitness, and then it's a question of how will I go from there to get fitter, stronger, to where I feel good about how I'm progressing. So that was my wedge week, two weeks on how I kicked out of the holidays. And yeah, so now it's a question of returning to some sort of swim fitness, which again is about 10 days away. I could feel it. Um, I'm sort of familiar with that. And then back to run fitness, which will take a little bit longer. I, I don't have an explanation as to why. The time off was the same, swimming and running, but it takes me, I think in general, it takes longer to rebuild running fitness, to be light on your feet, to feel connected to running, like you can run quite long at an easy effort um, over terrain, feeling light, and um, yeah. So could I do a 20-mile run again tomorrow? No. Could I do one next week? No, it would leave me quite sore um, and not really absorbing the work. It would just be, I ran, I slogged my way through 20 miles. It's going to take some time. I think right now I'm back to about 10 miles on trails. Um, how long will that gap and that delta take? Don't know. Um, but I would think it would take two to three weeks to go from 10 to 20 miles. I have done it last month, so it, it I can progress that a little bit quicker. But the proper recovery in between, what else am I doing? That coast ride isn't going to help that progression. Um, it's going to help it from a fitness standpoint, right? Um, but it's not going to help the pounding and the ability to run on trails. That's the thing with running on trails that many overlook. It is the breakdown on the body when the body is beyond its current fitness. That means that you get to a point on any long trail run, um, and when I say long trail run, probably over an hour and a half to two hours, where you now are complete, not completely, you are now feeling that you are beyond your fitness, that your form is breaking down, that um, it's no longer an easy as light and, and light, it's no longer as easy and light. And that now you have to sort of focus on being light, focus on form, focus on moving forward at a steady, relaxed, easy pace, um, energy levels. All of a sudden, you went from not really having to pay too much attention, it all unfolding by itself, your fitness, to paying attention. Um, how you're landing, um, that you're fueling, that you're hydrating, that you're all that everything's in sync still. It's no longer um, in sync because you don't think about it. You now have to focus on it. And so you have now this point where you have maybe 30, 40, max an hour to go to extend your fitness, to put it into an uncomfortable place, to have to focus and be mindful of your steps and how you're landing and how you're getting air in your stride so that you're not tripping over things, to 
body posture to um, how you're moving through and across and over terrain. And I find that always an interesting place to be because you, it, it's a very clear point. You notice within five to 10 minutes, like, wow, I just ran out of fitness. This is sort I'm at the, I'm at the, I'm getting tired and this is forced. This is, I have to pay attention now. So those three sort of ingredients come together. That's where it becomes training. That's where we have to engage and start thinking about, okay, now, in this case, let's say for me, that would be a two hours currently, now a little bit less, an hour and 45. Then I say, okay, I said, I'm going to run 215 today, time-wise, right? So for the next 30 minutes, I got to sort of pay attention. I got to turn off any podcast or book or music and just sort of engage into the running motion and focus and care. Um, because that's A, when we can get injured. B, we make stupid um, decisions and, you know, can't forget to fuel and hydrate and prep ourselves, obviously during the whole run. But at this point, it becomes more just like, where am I? What have I been doing? Am I fueled? Am I hydrated? And time to engage. So that's what I always call fitness running out. But yeah, so that's... um. That was the last few weeks. Then I went into this um, mindfulness for athletes for performance, excuse me, mindfulness for performance seminar, intensive four-day retreat slash slash immersive course taught by um, a professor down at University of California, San Diego, and he's worked with a variety of Olympic teams and so forth um, on mindfulness. And so I saw the program, um, read some work of his a couple of months ago, and I looked into the program and sure enough found that he had a course at this time of year. Um, not a huge course, just a couple of people, but um, it was fun. It was um, something new to me and it was sort of a new way to work on learning. Um, so this sort of intensive course in mindfulness training for high performers, including athletes, um, uh, first responders, law enforcement, military operators, and so forth. So that right there already intrigued me when I read about it because it's sort of the same space or client base that I work with. And the program is built around the latest brain research related to peak performance resilience, focus, and flow. So I'd come across this instructor, this um, the guy who runs the program, also in um, Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure. And um, his program, M-Peak, was also written up in a variety of different ways. So it was, it was good brain training work. Um, but how does mindfulness really fit into it? And that's the space that I'm not really the best at. Um, or so I thought. <laughs> it was funny. Emily and I both were somewhat surprised after day one of the immersive intensive course um, of how much we did actually know as we were going through some of the exercises and meditation and application and um, scenarios um, that we were able to see, well, we don't call it mindfulness, but it's sort of the mental state and uh, mental work that we apply to a lot of athletes and ourselves and so forth you know 
develop a greater focus and concentration. Yeah, mindfulness can help with that. Clear the mind, to calm the mind, to change the narrative of the mind, the thought process. To develop resilience, right? And learning how to be with really emotionally difficult or physical experiences. Um, so develop that resilience while you're out there many hours in a row and that self-talk and how to work with it and through it and kick out and still be progressing towards your desired outcome. To tap into the power of flow states. We talked a lot about flow states um, and athletics and performance and how to achieve it quicker or how to prime for it to set yourself up so that you're able to achieve flow state, especially in athletics. It's so important um, how to achieve it more easily and how to prime for it. Um, I also believe flow states come um, at, at many stages during ultra endurance events because again, the body breaks down enough, in this case, the ego, the small mind, and we're left in this space where just true higher consciousness is available and um, really puts us into a powerful place. The ego gets tired. It's crazy. The ego is tired of telling you no, that you're not good enough, that you can't do this, that you should be going faster, all that stupid self-chatter. It shuts down after many, many, many hours. And all that's left, because it's tired, it's not trained for an endurance event, is a beautiful state of flow and open consciousness and great thoughts and, you know, that rummaging through the mind and turning on lights and corners of the mind that you didn't turn lights on in a very long time. Um, that's possible via ultra endurance athletics. Another thing we learned about is to be present to the process and let go of any type of attachment to the outcomes, right? A lot of the things I talk about on the podcast being um, process-driven, enjoying the journey, what the journey means and why you're doing it and understanding it and observing yourself doing the journey, a lot of that came up in this mindfulness um, course. And finally, also leveraging personal strengths and stretching your own personal abilities um, without giving up or burning out so that you understand what you're good at and how to really hone in on that and use that to your advantage. Um, all while being a little bit more cognizant, uh, aware of how you're doing the things that you're doing. Um, that was the fun part too, is sort of hearing a different terminology around the things that I already talk about here a lot on the podcast. Um, he defined it as, you know, mindful performance, the quality of presence that emerges when one lets go of striving for an outcome and trusts the wisdom and talent available in the moment. That, that's a lot. Um, mindful performance, the quality of presence that emerges when one lets go of striving for an outcome, like I've said, not being goal-driven because there's too many other factors that tie into goals, outside influences, there's too much judgment around goals um, about achieving an outcome or you didn't. And then if you didn't, it's a negative subconscious um, um, thought, but also a process that goes on in your brain. 
and trust the wisdom and talent available in the moment. Now, talent available in the moment, not really a fan fan of using the word talent. I would turn that more into trusting the work available in the, the training, the prep available in the moment. Trust the wisdom, that's our confidence, that's our knowledge, that's our um, ability or confidence of knowing we did the work, trusting we did the work, trusting that what we did, maybe not all the work, but that the work that we did is available in the moment. And the talent available, we're switching to the um, the work we've done, the confidence we've done, the, um, but also the ability, the progression that we've done, I would say, not talent available. So the quality of presence that emerges when one lets go of striving for an outcome and trusts the work wisdom, the confidence, the concepts that we worked on and prep for this moment, for this event, for this moment in time in the event and talent available in the moment and hard work and focus and desire available in the moment. That was mindful performance, the way we worked through it. So a lot of fun. We did a lot of exercises, a lot of meditation, which I am not very good at, <laughs> nor am I very, um, not necessarily interested, but more um, something that I feel for performance and in athletics, we need a little bit more um a little bit quicker of a reaction and not necessarily reacting. We want to respond, right? We've talked about that on the podcast, reacting versus responding. But mindfulness in a performance atmosphere means that during an event or just prior to an event, we need to be able to clear our mind quickly. And what kind of exercises and what kind of states can we get in to quickly clear our mind of doubts of stories that we've written about ourselves that we now have the opportunity to change immediately with the event we are doing. The beauty of ultra endurance that I've talked about in the past is that we have this unique event, adventure, that is not necessarily limited to a hundredths of a second. If I'm in the middle of a 100-meter freestyle swim or a 200-meter butterfly or even a 400-meter IM, and I start thinking about my performance and what I'm doing and then try to be more mindful and go into a sort of a mini meditation in order to clear those negative thoughts, well, that's going to cost me a couple of seconds race over. In an ultra-endurance event, Closing your mind, focusing on a body scan, getting your body back in tune to what it's doing, clearing your mind, some breath work, even while you're doing said activity, biking, running, swimming, hiking, sailing, rowing, um, climbing, all that can be done with a couple of breaths and some body scanning, resetting and thinking forward, thinking next action steps how am I taking control of my performance right here, right now? And so that's a lot of what we did. And it was fun. It was um, informative. Um, I talked with Emily on the way home. We drove about how it wasn't necessarily that I learned anything new 
but I was able to take the concepts that have been floating around in a lot of reading and a lot of audiobooks and a lot of um, other ways that I gather information and put it under a certain umbrella of mindfulness now. So, um, and again, hopefully the goal here, the outcome here is to be a better coach and a better support network for you, the athletes that I not only work with, but that I come across in so many um, ways on any given day or month that I can deliver a better message so that you can be the best current version of who you are athletically and how it wraps into the overall best version of your current self. So that was that. So I really had some fun with this list from last year of what all of you, most of you listening being my athletes, completed last year or achieved last year. So I'm just going to ad hoc go through this list. I made some notes. Just going through my list of athletes who I coached last year. Um, Many I didn't coach all year. Many I've been coaching for many, many years. So it's always a mix. Uh, Athletes always, or prospective athletes, or people just in general ask me how long I typically coach an athlete. And it's it depends. Um, some only six to eight months towards their initial endeavor. And then I would say about 75% of them come back a couple of years later, a year or two later, maybe even five or seven years later with another adventure. Um, others, they sign up, they achieve some outcomes, and they have been with me for... Six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Um, but I would say on average three, four years. I also don't want it to become stagnant. I want them to be excited and have energy and positivity and progression around who they are as an athlete and are growing and learning. And then sometimes my voice and my style becomes noise and they need to find a different athlete, uh, athlete a different coach. And they need to find a different stimulus and a different voice that they're hearing, but also sometimes a different adventure. I have an athlete who I've been working with for a, a couple of years now, five, six years. And he is more of an athlete than the results have shown. Man, I've been trying a variety of different things with him in order to get him to have the results that I believe he can have. And I don't think this is a case of me believing um, something unrealistic or something that he doesn't want to achieve or can't achieve. It's just I haven't found that right knob to turn, that right stimulus that really brings everything up a notch and especially um, his race performance up a lot of notches because his training performance is really good. And, you know, I've tried all kinds of different approaches and it just hasn't worked. And so this year I recommended, or last year, end of last year, I said, you know what, in 2020, you should start with a different coach. Um, I'm worried that we just can get complacent here and that what I'm doing, the knobs that I'm trying to turn are just not the right ones. And maybe somebody different 
or a different voice or a different approach is a stimulus that you will thrive under. And like I've said many times before, A, that I don't take that personally, and B, I try something different with all my athletes every year. They never get the same approach again and again. We always mix it up a little bit. Sometimes we mix it up a lot. Sometimes it's a big change transition. But um, yeah, so that happens. But anyway, um, so athletes are with me, I would say on average about three years, three-ish years. That usually, and I've said before, that gives me a good sense of an opportunity of having tried to build an engine, to push that engine, to stretch that engine, to challenge that engine, to create new events that really challenge and test the engine and the person and the persona completely. And where I can say, you know what, we've really tapped into your potential, not your full potential. Some cases, yes, sometimes we reach that those heights but at least that we get a sense of potential and then you as athlete can make decisions on your own. Do I want to continue on with this commitment? Have I achieved the things that I wanted to achieve? Have I achieved way more than I thought I would achieve? Um, but three years gives me a solid sense of potential. Um, and that comes back from my Ironman days with coaching Ironman. It became a question of, one, um, the first season sort of getting you fit enough and sort of dabbling in an Ironman, just doing it, experiencing it. The second season, sort of taking an Ironman, taking the lessons from the first season, understanding why we did what we did the first season, because until you actually race on it and apply it, a lot of the ultra endurance training and triathlon training seems like, why am I going this slow? Why do I need to do it like this? Why zone two? This all makes no sense. Then once you're doing said event, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours long, you have a lot of aha moments. You understand why we did the training. So doing it a second time gives you that opportunity to sort of do it more mindfully, <laughs> do it more thoughtfully, and therefore absorbing it differently, better in order to then have a better Ironman, we can do strategy, we can execute differently, we can leverage our strengths and apply a little bit of um, um, strategy to the day, how we swim, how we run, how we bike, how we use our energy in the different disciplines. And then season three, we're looking to maximize the potential, the engine we have built. Now we've done two or three Ironmans where figuring out what strategy works best for us, for you, the athlete you currently are with the fitness you've built and the experiences you've gained, to now let's really risk it. Let's throw caution to the wind and put our best effort forth out there, really test our potential. And that's usually in season three, three, four Ironmans in, now really having fun with it, right? Really having the courage too. I mean, that's the thing too. The more you know, the more courage it takes to really throw caution to the wind. The less you know about an event, about an endeavor, whether it's endurance or not, um, the less you think about it, the less you worry about it because you don't know. But once you know, <laughs> that's when the monkey mind starts getting involved and the judgment and the worry and the 
how will I validate all this time I've spent training on it? <laughs> so the more you know, the more the monkey mind gets involved and the more courage you have to have, resilience you need to show in order to have that result that you have worked towards. You have to break through more paper walls, as I would say. They look like walls. And you come up against them gently and you think, oh, no, can't do it. I can't push harder than this. But sometimes you just got to bust right into that wall to notice it's just a paper wall. And now performance is available to you because you realize, wow, I can go this hard. And it's actually sort of gets easier if I'm going this hard for a longer period of time and don't think about it and worry about it. I can actually stay at this effort level longer than I thought. I used to think Z4, I would explode. I actually don't explode. So, um, and that's, that's the hard part. Of it. And that's what happens in year three or when we've done a variety of events. And now the mental game really becomes part of it. And that's, to me, also where the fun begins, right? Because now it's not just a question of using the engine that you've built but now it's a question of using the mind to go along with that engine to really pull out a performance that you didn't think you had. You could feel it maybe in training that you have a potential to get there, but you didn't know how to connect the dots of the physical to that really high standard performance. And that gap, those dots are connected by a strong mind. So, but I digress on events that the athletes did this year. So I had a first-timer who did her first Ironman ever and right away qualified for Hawaii. <laughs> so she went on to do her first Hawaii, um, which she had fun with. Um, I had a few other Ironman Hawaii racers. I, of course, had Ultraman racers. I had 70.3 racers all over the world from their first to their 20th to world's and you know, having an interest and a focus to get top five or top 10 at 70.3 World Championships. I had a climber who completed all 14ers in his state of Colorado in a single week. So that was quite an endurance event, getting staying up in the mountains, preparing for the next peak and so forth. Um, I also had another guy who ran by connecting two 14ers, so starting down in the valley at eight or 7,000 feet, ran one 14er, ran to the other 14er, and came back down. Of course, I had the Qatar Quest with Hishami and a few other athletes there. I didn't coach them, but Hishami I did, who successfully did the Qatar Quest that I did not do. <laughs> um, and so that was a pretty awesome achievement. And some of the videos I've seen that he's posted on how that went and the people he did it with, it really was inspiring and meaningful. Um, I had two Coast Guard swimmers, rescue swimmers, graduate um, to become Coast Guard rescue swimmers. Of course, we had a lot of marathons, a lot of first-time marathons, a lot of PR marathons, a lot of Boston qualifying marathons, a lot of New York marathons, a lot of marathons in general. But again, on all these that I list, you know, this might be an athlete that does an Ironman and a mar uh, marathon in the same year. So these aren't all separate athletes. They're doing 70.3 Worlds and maybe doing uh, an Ironman and so forth. Um, 
plenty of 100 kilometer runners. 100K is sort of a, it's not quite as overwhelming and as brutal and as recovery needed and as um, taxing mentally and physically as a 100 miler. But it is truly a long, again, sunrise to sunset event. 100K, 66 miles or 62 miles, excuse me, of running takes all day. <laughs> so um, I had a couple of extreme tries from obviously me doing Alaska and somebody else doing Alaska to somebody doing um, extreme try, X try Italy, and of course, a Norseman finisher. I had, of course, you guys have heard of Sophia, who did Tour de Guillance, which was absolutely insane. Just following her and watching that entire event unfold and prepping her for it of seven days in um, and around Courmayer and the ridiculous amount of climbing um, over seven days for that endurance event, hiking, some running, self-supported, no sleeping for however many days, sleeping on the side of the trail for 20 minutes, for 60 minutes, for a few hours, and then moving on. Um, not a question of mileage. I think it's like 150 or 160 odd miles, but only 78,000 feet of climbing. <laughs> so um, crazy, just crazy amount of climbing and descending and continuous time out there. Tour de Guillance is the, the incredible overcoming of endurance and mindset and continuous activity in brutal terrain, in altitude, all night, delirious, so forth. Um, and she, she did it. She did it. No questions asked with not. And what I mean by that, she did it um, with a sort of quiet confidence, nothing cocky. And definitely had fears prior, but with a quiet confidence of, you know, other things have always worked out. I'll be fine. And she did a lot of prep. But, you know, how do you prep for something that you're going to be out there for five, six, seven days straight, limited sleep, continuous motion, um, sleeping when you feel you need to sleep because it's absolute of the urgency. Otherwise, you'll fall off the side of a mountain <laughs> type of sleep. But... With that, um, just that continuous movement and sort of quiet confidence. And again, her prep was, you know, she runs a busy business. She has family and loves the outdoors. But, you know, still she got it done with a quiet confidence that I was quite impressed by. I had Wasatch 100 runners. I had Leadville 100 runners. I had 50Ks all over the world, from Iceland to China to South Africa. Um, many first 50Ks, which is fun because 50Ks, you know, it's a little bit more than a marathon. Many people have done a marathon and then they move into their first trail race, their first ultra running adventure, and it's a 50K. And you're like, ah, it's only a couple miles further than a marathon. Well, next thing you know, it's also twice as long in time on your feet than a marathon. And so you're back to like, wow, that was a lot more um, fatiguing, exhausting, challenging, but it gives me a sense of pride um, of having done my first that, you know, 
it surprises many people. It catches up to them that they're like, wow, it's a lot more than I thought it was. Um, you know, I had somebody, uh, as you guys also, again, a lot of this from the podcast, as you know, finished Leadville 100. Their goal was to finish Leadville 100. They DNF'd last year. They only made it to mile 77, I think, or 76. Um, finished it. Felt so good uh, finishing, like no fatigue, no soreness, ready to go running again, 48, 72 hours, 48 might be pushing it, 72 hours later, that he signed up and did another 100 within six weeks. <laughs> so um, there's a good example of somebody who I got him as ready as I could for Ledva 100, given how I knew him and who he was a year prior when he started. Now, in order to maximize performance, to make him faster on the course, I would have to go about the training differently. And he is this year doing a different 100-miler. Um, so we'll train a little bit differently um, so that he can run it faster. But for me, it was about over-preparing him in a fitness standpoint, in a strength standpoint, and in a durability standpoint, that he could finish Leadville 100 no matter how many things went wrong that he would be confident that he can keep on moving and make that 30-hour cutoff, which he did. And so there's it's definitely come up a few times with athletes, whether it's at Ultraman, whether it's at an Ironman, whether it's a 100-mile run, whether it's at other endurance adventures, where it's like, well, hmm, yeah, I did it. I just wish I would have gone a little bit faster. Or I've gotten the feedback of, I wish, in hindsight, um, I would have pushed a little harder. I stayed steady at this sort of aerobic speed for so long that, you know, I wonder if I would have pushed harder. Well, that wasn't our desired outcome. That wasn't part of our uh, strategy, our intention, um, our stated goal before we started this event slash the training for it. So that's where it becomes, all right, now that we know you can, and you're strong and healthy and got through it just fine, healthy and fine enough to do another 100 uh, six weeks later, got through that fine, felt okay, not a problem, not as hilly and challenging as Leadville, but still it's 100 miles. Um, now we can start playing with it and we can mess with the, the system a little bit and push it and risk a little bit more in the training in order to be faster. Um, of course, a couple of Boston runners. Um, what else did we have? We had, um, this was fun. Um, I had a guy go through the U.S. Marine Special Ops Unit, as in the training for it. One of the first classes to do that. It's a new unit in the Marine Corps called the U.S. Marine Special Operations Unit. So basically, sort of a, um, a special operations force within the Marine Corps. Um something that they just started two, three years ago and now have gone through the training curriculum for and are preparing athletes for and um, athletes, operators for. And so he was in that first initial class and uh, yeah, he did great. And, and again, this is another one of those areas where I want you fitter than the course. So something like this, your instructor, your um, sergeant, whatever it is, will um, uh, deliver you the training materials to be physically prepared for the U.S. Marine Special Ops Unit. So having that in hand, 
I, of course, took it and said, all right, now that's good. That's baseline, but let's make you fit as a fiddle for this baseline so that you exceed all the standards and actually can work on the things that, whether it's classroom work, whether it's other special specific work that I can help with you with, you can focus on that because you're so fit, you're so strong, you're so prepared for the physical aspect of this special ops unit that you are able to do the other work. You have capacity for that. And even if you don't do as well in that work, you have exceeded the standard of a physical preparedness for it, that therefore you should be successfully graduating from this um, preparatory or this testing, this test, excuse me. So um, then of course, 29029, we had a lot of people do 29029. Um, Utah and Vermont, but also how many athletes felt good doing it, enjoying it. And then the crazy thing is in 2020, I think I have a total of 22 people doing 29029 events um, with their wives, with their brothers, with their uncles, with their siblings, with their family. I mean, just awesome. It sounds... Um, sounds so fun to do it with your family. Um, I can't do it with my kids. They'd shoot me. <laughs> Literally, they. I think they'd shoot me if I showed up and said, we're going to hike this mountain. They're like, really? Really? We already lived this stuff day and night with you and Emily. Now you're also going to make us do it and sit here? And so, no. We do other stuff together, <laughs> but I can't get them to do that. Um, maybe when they're older, hopefully. But 29 or 29 in um, 2020, wow, that's a brain teaser, um, will be pretty cool. So the new Sun Valley event, that's with a bunch of athletes. Utah will be with a bunch of athletes. And Vermont will be with a bunch of athletes. And then also getting to meet so many new people there turns into just such an epic weekend times three this year instead of times two that it's traditionally been, that I'm really excited to introduce so many people to their first ultra endurance experience. And I'm not the one introducing, right? Obviously the event is, but to be there, part of that introduction and to see their eyes light up as they're sort of completing and living and present for their first ultra endurance experience, going through the night, seeing what that feels like, observing, absorbing nature in that way, seeing two sunrises. So when you start, you start in the dark and you see that first sunrise. And then when you go through the night and then that next sunrise to do something that you've never done before, hiking up a mountain and to do it all night and to do something continuously like that for 24 to 36 hours, it is such a sense of pride and meaning and eye-opening for so many athletes that are doing this for the first time or having their first experience like this. It is so awesome to be part of. And um, yeah, I should actually probably do a podcast from 29029 this year. I'm just thinking about that. Maybe I'll do one with Rich. We'll go on site and do a podcast from 29029. Anyway, an idea. Mountain biking adventures this year. I had people do Epic. I had people do Wild Corridor, Transbavians, 
all kinds of crazy mountain bike expeditions and races and multi-day stage races in South Africa and in Australia. And then, of course, Leadville 100 riders, all kinds of crazy mountain bike adventures, um, you know, and a good example, <clears throat> excuse me, of something that I am not, I don't participate in. I don't do mountain biking. I trail run and I cycle. I do a little bit of gravel biking, but I don't mountain bike. But yet the concepts and how we apply it is fun to coach for. So um, then you heard of my five-day stand-up paddle challenge racer, Aaron. And this year, so last year it was about completing it. He did it. This 200-plus kilometer um event i think 11 cities over five days that you paddle stand up paddle challenge and you have cutoffs and you got to get to each um, location in a certain amount of time and then you do it again the next day um, well this year there's another grouping of it that does continuous so he has 34 hours to do 200 plus kilometers stand up pot paddling continuous um, and yeah we're going after that Am I confident that I'll be able to do it? Yes. Do we have some work to do? For sure, because this isn't a question of a fitness um, approach. It's a question of a resilience and mindset and confidence and overcoming approach. We're doing something for 34 hours. It's so different than doing it for 34 hours broken up with a night of sleep and food and fueling and resetting in the morning. So it'll be a new challenge, but a fun one. And then you all know that I had an Everest climber, um, as you might have heard also, that he is one of the athletes of mine that didn't make it to the top of Everest. Um, out of safety reasons, there was a huge ice overhang, snow overhang above ice fall, the glacier field, the glacier runoff that you have to cross, the ice field you have to cross. And if you're out over ice fall and this huge Tons and tons of snow in this overhang above it. If that were to fall, you're not, you, you, it, it is way too risky. Um, so, and he showed me pictures and it was pretty impressive slash daunting slash, um, and I say impressive because the fact that they, after training for something for eight, nine, ten months and the expense and the time and the meaning and the excitement and the, um, the um, anticipation of making it to the top of Everest to be, be turned around there out of caution is something that I, I, I say is impressive. Um, one would want to press, but he chose and he made the decision for the rest of the expedition to turn around um, out of safety and not wanting that responsibility nor wanting to risk anything like that. Um, just to know you can come back again some other day and do it so um and this year um, he will do something similar but um he definitely is going to go back to everest and i have another athlete doing everest this year she and she will also do very well up there and um she have she has an amazing support network which i'm not going to say <laughs> who that is because um um 
her achievement of doing it is independent of her support network. She needs to be out there doing it and she's going to do it. And I'm excited and proud of her for when she will do it. So we're working on getting her fit and strong and ready for that. Then you all know about my double Ironman guy. Um, such a fun story and such good logistics. And he did most of it. I just did the fitness, but he did the logistics and worked out pretty darn good that he did um, Ironman Sweden Kalmar on a Saturday, got on a car after he finished it, drove south to Copenhagen and an Ironman <laughs> in Copenhagen or in, uh, yeah, yeah, Copenhagen. A couple, uh, couple hours later, off he went. Did two Ironmans in a matter of uh, 36 hours, right? So he did one in Sweden, um, drove down the road and did the other one in Denmark. And that was that. Um, both of them, like one was 10, 10.30 and the second one was like 10.38. I mean, so steady, so smooth, so fit, so such a huge diesel engine to be able to do that steady like that at that at that pace and that time and that lack of recovery and just go out and redo it it's amazing i'm very similar courses both flat and steady and you know but still that wears on you that breaks your body down flat and steady um that the pounding is different and then your hips and your bones and your lower back and all that just gets tight when you have a steady course like that and so then having to do it all over again, <laughs> less than eight hours after finishing the other one, or yeah, yeah, I think he said he got like five hours of sleep because he had to finish, had to get his stuff, had to pack his gear, had to get his bike, had to get it all loaded up, had to drive. He didn't drive, had somebody drive. Um, they, him and his crew, he drove down to Copenhagen, got set up, got registered, got it all taken care of. Got checked into a hotel, ate a little something, got some sleep, woke up, deja vu all over again. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's just truly what I thought they should have done back then is make a movie of his experience, like an Iron Man Groundhog Day. So um, had some Spartan Ultra and Spartan Ultra Beasts and Spartan Beast people. Um, one guy doing very well in his age group, I think third in the world at the world championships and the ultra distance at Spartan. So that was pretty fun. I had um, Grand Traverses of Colorado, in Colorado. Um, the Grand Traverse is like 42 miles, 43 miles. Can't think off the top of my head. Um, so they had fun running, hiking, doing that. And then I had one person do the Grand uh, Teton Traverse also. In a running slash Killian Journey, uh, running across mountain peaks, cresting cliffs and peaks and just running and jumping and then off to the next mountain. And then I had Aaron do Race to the Rock, you know, and we've talked about this and it's been on my newsletter, the 3000 kilometer continuous gravel bike race from the outside of Australia, basically to the center of Australia, nonstop self-supported 3000 kilometers straight through the middle of nowhere um i mean we're talking desolate our logistics were more around how many hours despite having huge buckets of water attached to his bike how many hours how many hundreds of kilometers 
he had to go without water because you can't find water out in the Australian desert outback um, as if it's just lying around. Um, and how far off course there would potentially be water. Like there was one spot where it would be 90 minutes one way to get to a potential water spot where there's been water in past years, but not always versus then 90 minutes back to get to the course um, to get to where you need to go. There's no way around it. It's basically an out and back. Um, so is that three hours worth it? Or do you just go a little bit longer and uh, go another six hours without water? And what happens if there's no water? And now you did the three hours and you have another six hours. Um, so I mean, just an amazing accomplishment. I think he got second overall. Um, but you know, he feels like he could have done a few things better and is excited to rebuild that engine and maybe give it another world this year. Although given the fires and the situation down under, I'm not sure how that will work or unfold. Seems like um, that might be a, a difficult thing to do given what the awful, awful happenings down there right now. So um yeah, that was sort of a, a sampling. I mean, I'm sure I forgot a bunch of little things or different events or weird events and consults and people I worked with on the side that were doing all kinds of other adventures. So that's sort of a year in the life of AIM coaching when it comes to all kinds of ultra endurance endeavors, adventures, um, self-curated ideas that come to reality when we're doing our ultra endurance thing. So that was 2019. 2020 has all kinds of new adventures again planned. Um, just looking through what many athletes have planned this year and especially in January checking in with them and getting started and look knowing where we're going and resetting intentions and making sure we have some clarity and purpose around those intentions. Um, again, we'll make 2020 another interesting stimulating year of coaching for me um, i've said a long time ago well not that long ago but i would say about two three years ago i really started um, working more and more into wanting to be there it is again mindful about um what kind of athletes I want to work with. And of course, a couple of years ago, more like three, four years ago, I switched over towards this ultra endurance aspect, but to become basically the premier go-to ultra endurance coach in the world, sort of specializing in going long in a systematic and healthy for, um, format um, and specializing in that. That's, that's basically what I love to do um, now. Of course, I work with athletes that are on their way or curious to do more, but we first need to achieve some shorter things so that they get the sense and confidence and schedule down to think about longer events versus over committing to something that's so long and then um, after 8, 12 weeks having to shut it down because it's just not reality on finding the time or with work or with family and so forth. But that being said, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, it was more a question of what kind of clients do I want to take on because my roster is full and it has been working around interesting events. So 
athletes that come to me that have an interesting story, event, something that will challenge me, where I have to do research and understand it more. And that could be on a mental aspect too. Um, what does this athlete struggle with and how can we overcome things as they get ready, even for whatever, a half trail marathon, a 70.3. But if you've struggled or if the athlete has struggled um, to reach their potential and the mental game is getting in the way, that's part of that interest to me. That's part of what intrigues me. Um, that's one criteria, an interesting event or an interesting subject or an interesting situation. Or you just have to be a fun person that I would like to work with. As I said to uh, another prospective athlete the other day, you, I'd, I'd want to, when I meet you, sit down and have a beer with you. And we just talk and have a fun conversation. That's you're then my athlete. You're one of the athletes I'd like to coach. And um, rarely has that, those two ingredients, has that burned me where I, I, I missed, um, missed, that's enough, where I've missed, <laughs> where the athlete and I don't get along or the event or the challenge or the um the work that we're going to do is not stimulating. So, um, but that's what 2020 will bring more of that stimulating, challenging, fun, meaningful endeavors. We're doing this entire journey with fun, interesting, open, vulnerable people. So, well, what is this test group I talk of? <laughs> That sounds very like my old swim coach from Hungary. Chris, what is this magazine you speak of? Or what is this class you're taking? Anyway, um, this test group. Well, in coaching so far, in most of swim coaching, in triathlon coaching, in ultra coaching, in, ge in general, the approach for me, the principal way of doing things has been to gently but gradually progressively get the athlete fitter and fitter um, via um, progression you know a couple of weeks of increasing the load pulling back recovery week redoing it whether at a little bit higher level or back to square one increasing the volume a little bit and intensity or a mix between the two or just one exclusive of the other recovery week See, observe how you're absorbing, adjust the prescription from there, and continue to get better, stronger, fitter from that. So if you were to look at it on a graph, it's sort of a little bit um, um, week one, week two, a little bit more, week three, maybe a little bit more, week four, bring back the volume down to maybe 50% of it, and then go back to two or three weeks of building with new concepts or maybe a different stimulus or more taxing or more more volume um, and then being back to um, recovery. So you, you have these small micro builds and then over a, a, a quarter or over a half of a season, you have these major builds. You can see a gentle progression that your volume gradually increases with these little gaps in between of recovery weeks. That's sort of the traditional way of doing 
endurance coaching and also a lot of other coaching, um, even for a lot shorter events. Although the aspect of a recovery week in shorter events, college events, is quite rare still. Um, not enough coaches, whether in basketball, whether in football, whether in they are, are um, truly keeping a format like that in play all the time. Um, based off of situations, they might, but not as much as part of their general um, principled approach. But that's a different discussion. And probably time for a guest for something like that, because um, versus me just speaking. But anyway, so what I would like to do, and uh, it's similar to what um, others have done in the past. Uh, Scott Molina, I think of, um, a little bit of Mark Allen, um, but that's more in the triathlon world where things are very managed and measured. Um, and, and you can see and chart these things very nicely, but the step approach, um, that is more that you stay at a certain level that that volume slash intensity or a mixture between the two or the intensity exclusively or volume exclusively stays at a certain level for a longer period of time. And then when it's fully absorbed, when it goes from challenging to feeling just right to it's way too easy, when you go through that full phase of doing it for a variety of weeks, basically the same type of training, and then taking it after it's too easy for a couple of weeks, taking it up a notch from there. Whether that means including intensity in the volume, and therefore more hours, um, whether it means increasing volume, whether that means increasing a different sport, um, one of the three, or, or more strength, or less strength, and more volume, and more, or more strength, more intensity, less volume, however that is dependent on said athlete. But then that next jump, that next step is, again, in the beginning, holy crap, this is challenging. It's a little bit too hard to a couple, two weeks later, maybe this feels just right. I'm really connected. It feels just right. I feel awesome to, oh my God, this is way too easy. Um, it's boring. It's not stimulating me. I don't feel anything, um, that type of sensation. So those are the steps. Those are the outlines of the steps. Now, why would you do it? Well, what's beautiful there is that as you go from challenging to steady to too easy, you're maintaining an outstanding focus on form, technique, posture um, at all times. So in that week of making sure that the strength work is done extremely clean and technically sound, if you're doing cycling work, that your posture and your pedal technique and the overall, all the ingredients are done with the utmost attention to good technique, good flow, good format, good posture, good everything, which makes it challenging in itself in the beginning. But as you get, as it gets easier from an effort standpoint and an hour standpoint, your quality and your technique level stays very high and continues to get ingrained. And then when it becomes too easy, despite you holding great technique, form, posture, lightness, um, focus, whatever the ingredients are for your specific discipline for doing it right, 
for doing it clean, for doing it economically, or it becomes more economic, for doing it efficiently, um, is the key to each step as well. So the value is twofold. A, obviously you see the fitness because it goes from challenging to just right to too easy, but you also get this technique-focused approach. So those mile repeats that week one were impossible, if not weren't achievable, you kept missing them by, let's say, a second or two or three, by the middle of the phase, become achievable with a lot of focus and work. And then to see them become easily achievable, like, of course, they're still intervals and they're still hard, but you don't struggle to click into achieving the pace. Um, but yet doing the first week challenge one mile repeat at a full focus on form, posture, technique, turnover, light on feet, um, body positioning, and all that. And then watching yourself actually do it comfortably with that focus on form, technique, posture, and on the things you need to work on integrated, that is the step approach. That's the full benefit of having them um, across the board like that. And that's the place why that why it's so intriguing to me so taking something that would be challenging making it easier despite holding technique is what i really like uh, that's why i like the concept um, and i'm going to do it for myself this year um, i'm going to change the way i look at training peaks the way i look at charts the way i look at volume the way i look at intensity the way i look at strength i'm not going to progress out of the three strength let's say i'm sorry, let's say I have two strength work workouts that week. I'm not going to change those for many weeks um, until I they're too easy. I'm not going to add weight. I'm not going to change the format of them. The concepts usually are the same over 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks. We just mix up the muscle groups, but nothing, but they still repeat in many ways. But I'm not even going to change that. I'm going to keep them the same but do them better, cleaner, stronger, smarter, better technique, smoother, more powerful, more explosive, more concentric, more eccentric in the motions. So the weight needs to be challenging in the beginning, needs to be done um, with focus in the middle, and needs to become too easy at the end, as an example, before I move on. My swim paces. I'm not going to challenge myself to a faster swim time until it becomes easy to hold what used to be a challenging fast time. I'm not going to change my running volume or my running paces or my amount of intensity per week um, until the intensity that I'm currently doing doesn't feel like intensity anymore feels easy that I need to up the effort. So it's not an effort question. It requires a lot of monitoring of paces and heart rate and not breaking out of those categories despite being able to, despite being fit enough and feeling strong enough and with a little gentle push could, but holding back and then focusing and using that capacity, brain capacity, physical capacity, mental capacity 
to instead focus on form, technique, turnover, footwork, lightness. In cycling, if I want to do a cycling event this year, I don't know yet. That's all part of the mystery that shrouds my 2020 season, um, which is a different topic. In is will be especially from an aero perspective or from a wattage perspective or from a distance and volume perspective, I am not going to do more than one hour of zone three work until I can do it smoothly at a certain cadence and my heart rate stays low. Um, I'm not, because it's a wattage number, um, I'm not going to break out of the aero position um, or do more aero work or do it differently until I am completely comfortable at holding a certain wattage for a certain amount of time in the arrow position until I can do three times 20 minutes at zone three watts let's say whatever 250 watts for 20 minutes without breaking out of the arrow position right because I need to loosen up or I need to change the muscle groups it should be that controlled that relaxing that efficient that smooth that I can hold 20 minutes of 250 watts comfortably before I move to 280 watts, to move before I move to 275 watts, um, and do and look for the same sensation. So all measurable things, all measurable inputs that need to be challenging to start, need to become focused in the middle, but not as challenging. You just have to click into it and say, okay, here I go. Have my prep? Do I have my hydration? Do I, do I have the road for it? Do I have this? Okay, here we go. Turn on. Two, going too easy. Wow. This used to be a lot more challenging. Now my heart rate's coming down while I'm doing the interval. I'm able to hold technique, form, posture, footwork, and it's time to switch now. You know, And I'm absorbing the rest of the workouts of the, uh, the, the week itself, um, all in harmony together. And then it sounds daunting, like there's a lot of inputs and how do you monitor all that? It's all monitorable. I mean, it does require us to have good observations with regards to how we're feeling, what we're observing, easily done in the notes. And so I already have identified one, like four athletes that I'm going to do this with. But I think it'll be a fun experiment uh, approach to cycles of training um, for 2020. Um, and again, where did this come from? Um, it came from um, the strength training world. It came from the cycles that power lifters and um, yeah, that power lifters use and how they prep their strength gains and events and cycle for their competitions. And it definitely got me thinking too, well, maybe we can do something different in the endurance world, in the endurance training, coaching world, and apply similar concepts. So there too, in the strength training world, it's about a challenging way to start. Middle of the time, it feels just right, like you're getting the proper strengths gains from it. And then after the adaptation has happened, the, the strength, the weight that you're doing, the resistance you're working on becomes too easy. Then you give yourself maybe another week. It almost turns into a recovery week, right? When it's too easy, it's almost recovery. The tax on the body goes way down. So it's almost a reverse progression. Start with the volume. Start with the fatigue. Start with the challenge. And see the body go backwards to adaptation and then recovery in its own way by not changing the stimulus. Um, so 
Now, there's an asterisk there. The asterisk becomes, you can't make it too challenging, of course, that you get sore or that you limit your ability to even absorb or have the adaptations of the workout. Do not force adaptation. You can never force adaptation in any way you approach training, whether progressive or step, or the third way that they talk about was variable um, cycles, um, is you cannot force adaptation. You cannot force yourself to hold a certain wattage in the arrow position on the bike if it's with mashing bad circles form while you're cycling and pedaling squares and pushing 55 cadence. No. You cannot force yourself to swim faster. And this is what bugs me about in a lot of masters training. that You can't force yourself to swim faster with fins and paddles and all the gear because guess what? You have to be able to swim that speed without all the toys. You can't force yourself to swim faster than you if you're just flailing away and it's bad form and you blow up after that 100 um, fast right? And then you can't repeat it. You can't force yourself to run too hard, too fast. That leaves you sore, leaves you with bad form, bad turnover, right? Bad posture, and then therefore causing injuries on all of them. All that increases the likelihood of injury. You cannot force adaptation. It has to be gentle. Um, Now, it can be significant, but it has to be gentle. So what's the difference? It could be a significant jump from where you usually train, but the adaptation, uh, the uh, the, um, the application needs to be gentle. Needs to be gentle, meaning observant. Needs to be gentle with how hard you push. Needs to be gentle with: Am I pushing because of effort, or am I p- pushing because I'm on the far end of holding good technique? Right, and many of you know what I'm talking about. There's times where you can run fast, leg turnover, light on feet, um, high up in the air with regards to knees and posture and upright and the, 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 the push off you get from your feet and the airtime you're getting versus flailing, driving, forcing, pushing. There's a difference between the two. One can be achieved by a relaxed, economical, good form, get the good technique, but focused. It requires a lot of work and focus to maintain that good form, technique, posture, footwork, turnover, all that for a certain amount of time. So that's the significant jump in effort. You do it longer or just on the far end of what you're able to hold the technique and then see yourself holding it longer as you get fitter, or you can hold that form technique fit so that just long enough and then continue to make that easier, clicking into that easier. Let's say you ran that two-mile interval in uh, 1645, but you maintain good footwork, you maintain good form, light, good posture, had a good flow to your running motion. And then by the end of the two miles, you could feel yourself having to really stay with it just barely to maintain somewhat connectivity to that good form. Might not be all perfect, but just you're connected to it. You you were holding on to it. Well, now you do it again um, a week later. You do 1645-ish again, but you were able to hold it to the end. 
still required focus, still required work. Then another week later, you did 1645-ish again with 1642 or 1650. It's not the point about the same speed. But now you felt, wow, I was able to get to the end and it didn't really require that much focus to maintain it. Um, I had to focus to get into that form and, and engage, but it didn't, I didn't really barely hang on. I just, 16.45 came, I was done. Two mile stretch came, I was done. Important is that you maintain the same speed pace, right? You can't slow down by a lot um, week to week in order to hold form. You got to hold the same pace for the same distance. Two miles, same pace. Um, now by week four, you click in and it's, no, I just clicked in. By week five, you click in. Still a challenging time to do the 1645, but it is not challenging to hold the form, technique, posture, footwork, leg turnover for the two miles. Like that's just natural. And then finally, because also at the same time, heart rate's coming down because it's not as challenging. You're more economical <laughs> in your motions. And then finally, by week six, you're comfortably doing 1640-ish for two miles while maintaining pace, uh, technique, form. You've had the adaptation. You're not forcing the adaptation. You're holding the adaptation and doing it more economical. So what happens then? Well, because that one, the last week wasn't very challenging, maybe do one more week. It's easy. It's almost like a recovery week. So now you're week seven. Then reset. And so now instead of doing a two-week, three-week on recovery, two, three-week on recovery, seven weeks. Sorry, hit the mic there. Um, seven weeks um, for the two, three weeks on, one week recovery, two, three weeks on, one week recovery. That's seven weeks versus what we just described, seven weeks. So you can see it stays at a steady now you take a step up. So now let's say you run that two mile interval in, let's say you go 1620-ish, something, 25. So 20 seconds faster for two miles, 10 seconds per mile faster. But again, far edge of being able to hold the form technique for that long. And then, um, you know, same adaptations, looking for the same flow at a faster time, faster pace, same distance, and simultaneously watching heart rate come down over that five, six, seven weeks. So that's the step training approach that I am working through and writing out and planning not only for myself, but for about three other athletes that I'm working with. And um, yeah, I'm excited to report back. Let me know if you have questions on that or have ideas for yourself on how to apply it. And maybe I can help you. Maybe you send me an email and I'll walk through your training on how I would do the step approach for you in that scenario. So there's that. All right. And finally this week, um, there's been a preseason focus going on. And I've had a variety of athletes go through... Um, a true preseason approach this year. And it's been different than past years because what it means is shutting down the other activities during that preseason approach. Um, and this is very challenging for a lot of people. It's sort of like, well, what are you talking about, Chris? Not swimming, not biking, not running, not climbing, not hiking, not 
doing anything other than truly off-season slash pre-season work. And many struggle with this. Many have pushed back on me, but it's important for us from a resetting the body, resetting the clock, resetting everything in what I call this preseason. Um, now, can you do some easy stuff here and there? Of course you can. I mean, and I, for some athletes, I did it so that they stay connected to the motion, but the motion does not tax them said activity does not fatigue them does not cost them anything with regards to their recovery but instead just activates the groups the motions the discipline the muscle groups that they're working with running cycling swimming rowing hiking um, whatever it is stand up paddling all those things um, and they're still actively and effectively recovering for the next strength workout and the, the the description has been in in <coughs> excuse me in that it's designed to strengthen and prepare the athletes for the rigors that lie ahead so giving them a forced time off and doing a different group of activities right this whole <coughs> different excuse me differentiation of training um, stimulating different muscle groups, um, confusion, muscle confusion. But muscle confusion also works with energy system confusion, right? Anaerobic, aerobic, um, oxygen deprivation, supersaturation of oxygen. Doing things differently and confusing the body so it doesn't constantly jump into familiarity, homeostasis, steady state. And we want to do this in, in the off-season to allow for that significant break from our endurance activity that we do. Running, swimming, biking, hiking, rowing, paddling, um, whatever. Whatever it is. So many different things. Um, so it's a good time of year to do this. But that's what, the important part there, that you take that time off in between the activity in this case, strength, in order to have the best possible adaptation and really confuse the body and change the adaptation. So completed without any real additional training. The key word there is additional training, right? We differentiate between training and exercising. If you're exercising and just doing something, movements, fine. Again, it doesn't impact your body's ability to recover effectively to have the maximum effect adaptation of the desired prescriptive outcome and that's as specific as i can explain it right we want we have a specific outcome in mind it's these four strength sessions this week what are we doing in between those to ensure that those strength sessions are absorbed in the best possible way to have the best possible outcome for when we need that strength when said season ramps up again and those gains those adaptations are available to us for our said specific sport specific event specific activity whether that's swimming biking running combination of them climbing hiking rucking spartan whatever it is paddling we want to have the gains then when we need them in our training phase 
of sports-specific work, right? You go through a general foundation, you go through a sports-specific phase, uh, phase, and then you go into sort of a taper intensity phase. Um, and how they're mixed up and how long each one is is, a, is independent, is not independent, it's dependent on the athlete. But that's why this preseason, some call it off-season, work is so important to allow it to be absorbed independent as its own freestanding session um, grouping. And there's only about 28 to 30 sessions. You do them in about six weeks, you're done. And so I've had a variety of athletes struggle with this. Um, and the response to them, hold on, let me pull up a training peaks here. Um, I mean, I've written into some of their training peaks <laughs> some wording around, uh, you know, you really want to focus on, uh, you know, on keeping these days light in order to have the maximum. All right. As we continue to go through this preseason strength, Keep in mind to train light volume, in this case running. We want the strength component, not any type of run fitness. So we want the strength component. We're not looking for gains in running fitness. We're just looking to keep firing neuromuscularly, right? So we want to we want the strength component, not any type of run fitness. All we are doing is maintaining the neuromuscular familiar familiarity with the running motions and firing, right? So, and for those of you who are not coached by me, I'm saying, and I'm bringing this up on the podcast because it's very good at this time of year. It's dark days, it's rainy, it's cold, it's miserable. It's a great time to do this, to stimulate the body differently. It's going to help you accomplish your future outcome. This uh, good strength um, phase or it's exclusively strength, is a completely different stimulus. Back to the confusion I talked about. It's using the time of year and the environment and the shorter days and the darkness to your advantage. So you kick out when the weather turns and the days get longer with a platform to put the load on better. You're going to swim, bike, run, or any combination of those or whatever your event is. Anyways, you have those, but that part of the training is actually easier. It's at this time, and what am I doing now so that I have a better future outcome? What am I doing in the process now, in the journey now for said future outcome? And this might be one of those things where you say, okay, for six weeks, I'm just going to do strength training for five days a week. The other two days, I'm going to do some light movements in my activity, whether that's hiking, whether that's an easy jog, whether that's easy swim, an easy bike spin, an easy whatever you're doing, an easy paddle. And then knowing I'm connected to the motions, I'm strong. Now let me take that and build a foundation um, to launch from and get into the summer. So that is why um, preseason training with off days or light days is so important and is so meaningful for our training progression and our goals for 2020. Well, I think that ought to do it for this week. We're an hour and 45 minutes into this conversation of primarily me not only recapping 
the holidays and talking a lot about myself, which I apologize, but also hopefully giving some guidance with regards to mindset, with regards to the training, with regards to a new approach of how to go about training if you're designing it for yourself, why a preseason is so important and so forth. So I'm not going to go into any emails today. I'm going to jump right back onto my 2020 commitment, which is to be more consistent and follow through with the podcast. Um, I know I say a lot of things that I want to do on the podcast, whether it's the swim-focused podcast, whether it's getting Emily on for nutrition whether it's talking through a 70.3 plan, whether it's following through on the marathon plan with Sunny. Um, Life not only gets in the way, but also the direction of the podcast gets in the way when other more urgent or what I seem to sense as more urgent questions and directions come up. But I have not forgotten those and I know I need to follow through on them. And so that's what 2020 is. Uh, staying true to the things I said I would do. And I also have a few ideas for 2020 and looking forward to applying those. I might have somebody join me on the podcast on a consistent basis, or I might start a new podcast with said person um, just once a month that we go through um, a new approach that I was thinking of contemplating and want to run by a few people as we sort of move into a true production of that because that would be a bigger deal but more on that later also uh, going into the third week second week of january it's coast ride time so i'm going to try to get out a podcast here in the next few days again to just answer those questions um, go over a quick other few topics and then i'll be gone on the coast ride we are 40 riders Um, although two have so far canceled um, just within the last 24 hours. And so 38 riders down the coast, and uh, it should be another fantastic year of many of us having a fun endurance adventure. Now, what is that? What is the coast ride in regards to an endurance adventure? Well, it is about not coming in shape, Um, Many are always surprised by me saying that, that I don't want the athletes coming in to the coast ride in shape. It's January. I don't want you fit enough, primed enough, strong enough yet to be able to ride 120 miles a day. Um, That's not what we want in January. We want to use the coast ride as a long day to gradually get our cycling legs back, to contrast our fitness to what it is in the summer and have a good understanding of our body and how it works when it's out of shape or not primed in perfect shape. Um, That's how I approach the coast ride. It's a hard, hard event, not really because of the distance, 120 miles a day. Um, That's basically what I did back in October. But again, you have a different level of fitness on the back end of a summer than you have in January coming out of the holidays. And so we all struggle through that together. Um, Most of the riders aren't going to be that fit and we all sort of work our way through long cycling days together. The struggle is more mental. Uh, After two, three hours, or actually three, four hours, the body starts getting achy 
uncomfortable. The mind starts playing tricks on us. Um, negative self-talk starts creeping in. Why am I doing this? I'm not in shape for this. The next three days are going to be miserable. A lot of that type of discussion is happening in your head. So for me, when I talk to the athletes on the coast ride, it's more about understanding what we're doing what this opportunity is to work through the mental game of just sitting on your bike for eight hours a day. Yes, it takes that long. There's a variety of elevation gain. And it's cool and difficult riding conditions in many cases. Um, and eight hours a day, seven to eight hours a day, that just takes a lot. Um, it, yeah, you start easy, but even easy gets fatiguing after a certain amount of time. And it's an opportunity to dive into the mindset of ultra endurance athletics. It's an opportunity to let go, to embrace, to sit through the suffering, the pain, the discomfort, the compression of time. It's funny because after a day or two, nah, after two or three days, most everybody, their understanding, their sense, their feel of time it gets widened the lens gets way widened and then the eight hours doesn't feel so bad but the first day it's like are you kidding me this will never end so and it'll be very difficult for me as well i like i said earlier i haven't ridden my bike um more than now twice i rode it yesterday um since thanksgiving more than three hours um one uh twice so jumping right into next week, a 120 mile, seven to eight hour ride will not be fun, but I have a very specific approach with the coast ride. It's always been small chain ring for me, steady spin down the coast for 30 hours of cycling. And it sort of has worked out in the past. It always creates a great platform and it also allows me to come home, even if I'm not doing anything cycling related. It allows us to come home and have a better sense. I can do something steady for eight hours. Even if I'm not in shape for it, I have the aerobic engine, um, the cardiovascular steady energy with fueling and hydration to do something continuously, easily, low intensity for six to eight hours. So using that when we come home, automatically launches us into different types of mindset regarding fitness, regarding that three-hour run, regarding that two-hour swim, whatever it is people are getting ready for. But knowing that we can do something continuous for that long is, is a very powerful feeling, and it just sort of propels you into better training in February and March and so forth. Um, so... Yeah, that's the Coast Ride. That's this week's podcast. Um, I look forward to a great 2020 with all of you listening. I look forward to new topics, new adventures, new discussions, new angles, new mindset, new growth um, as we progress on this podcast. I love doing this podcast. I know you have heard that from me before, but I truly am curious as to where 2020 will take it curious on what this can be and how we together can grow this community of listening and 
active engagement and um, interactive discussion into something that's even more helpful, that reaches more people that have a curious mind with regards to endurance athletics and nature and being outside and being alive in that nature, moving through nature and moving through um, terrain and over terrain and so forth, like I discussed before. But Anyway, have a great week, everybody. Have a great couple of days. I shouldn't say week. In a week from now, I'll be riding my bike. But have a great few days. I will um, get some questions out there on episode 125 as quick as I can. Thank you.